I can't undertake to explain Brigham Young to your Atlantic citizens or expect you to put him at his value. Your great men eastward are to me like your ivory and pearl-handled table knives, balanced handles, more shiny than the inside of my watch case, but with only edge enough to slice bread and cheese or help spoon victuals, and all alike by the dozen one with another. Brigham is the article that sells out west with us, between a Roman cutlass and a beef butcher knife, the thing to cut up a deer or cut down an enemy, and that will save your life or carve your dinner every bit as well, though the handpiece is buckhorn and the case a hogskin hanging in the breech of your pantaloons. You, the judgment by the handle and sheath, how can I make you know a good blade? Welcome, everyone, to A Word Fiddly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi to talk more Mormon history. Zelwyn, how's it going? Things are going pretty well up here. It was actually really kind of almost cold this morning again when I woke up and dealing with my garden and trying to get some water on it because it's been a little dry. But we're in the middle of haying season out in this part of the world, and the hay crop has been quite, quite good, which is a nice change of pace from the past couple of years. So give thanks to the Lord for that. What about you, Willie? You know, pretty mild weather here. Got a little bit of rain this week, which was good for the crops. My own garden doing fine, about to be overrun with gourds and pumpkins right now. And that's that's okay. You know, we'll, that's, fall that's a will be problem. here before we know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just not sure what I'm going to do with, you know, a ton of dipper gourds. But hey, we'll find a well <laughs> or something. You plan make it some maracas, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you know it's it's good to have a bounteous harvest, but sometimes you don't know what to do with it. But we'll see. You know, got to have bees and and everything like that. We should really just do an episode on gardening one day. You know, gardening <laughs> as masculine pursuit, as Christian pursuit. I think that would work. If you guys want to hear that, let us know at Word Fitly Posting or at the website. So yeah, things are things are going well, and you know the early season that we had here uh, with all the rain wasn't good, but things are starting to to catch up for the most part. So happy for that. Oh, very good. Yes. Yeah. So we're back into Mormonism, Mormon history uh, to be exact, and it gets even more interesting from where we left off. So Zellin, where did we last, where did we leave this conversation the last time? Well, it's been a couple of months. I'd have to look to see exactly where it's been. But we left off with the death of Joseph Smith in Carthage, Illinois. So the Mormons have settled in Illinois after kind of being pursued in Missouri and uh, the extermination orders that came through from there. But now they're still seeing some kind of uphill battles that culminated in the death of Smith and the death of who else was with him? Uh, Hiram, his brother? Right. Right. And so that's and so we're kind of left in this now this transitional period of where do we go from here? You know, where is the the more what are the Mormons going to do now that the prophet has died? Right. So where do we want to go from there, Willie? Well, you know, you set it up nicely. The Mormons are always at this point in history. I don't want to say disorganized because that's not true, but everything's in a constant state of flux. They've been ran out of Missouri. They've been essentially ran out of every place they've been. And now their leader has been killed by a lynch mob. 
So what do we do? What what does a religion do when it's so dependent upon one man, in particular a living prophet? Now, this is the first issue that they have. It's it's Joseph's role. So what is he? Well, he's described as, of course, the president of the church, the trustee, the president of the first presidency, and of course, most famously, prophet, seer, revelator, and translator. And you get some different forms of this and the different versions of the Doctrine and Covenants and things like that. So there's all kinds of questions. Well, okay, whoever's chosen, how do we choose him? What is his role going to be? Will will whoever takes Joseph's place then fill all these roles just like Joseph did? They don't know. You've had a lot of notable men in the Mormon church at this time, and they've been excommunicated and then brought back in and sometimes excommunicated again. So sometimes the men standing, we don't really know, you know, who who's next in line, things like that. So we bump into all kinds of, of complicated things. Now, of course, the most famous of the successors and the one who I think most people see as the heir is, of course, Brigham Young which we're going to get into right. a little later in the episode. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the Mormon church is divided almost immediately upon Joseph's death. And really, it's starting to splinter even before that. But it is it really divides, and a lot of those groups that broke away from what we call the LDS church today are actually still around. And it just gets, it gets kookier. You know, we talk about, you know, the, some of the weird things that happened say, in Nauvoo or in Kirtland or New York, just with Joseph Smith. And then it just gets it gets more bizarre from here and, and, and more cutthroat and sometimes quite literally. It's a violent thing. And any, any religion, I think, suffers this to some degree. Not necessarily, you know, quite as bombastic as some of the events that happen after Joseph Smith. But it's this question of we have... So idolize this one man, now that he's gone, what will we do? And so we'll we'll see what they did. So you want to take a look at the theoretical successors? Well, and maybe it's worth saying just before we get into the successors, too, that the the issues which are going to divide them are are kind of manifold. We have Mm -hmm. issues of, of doctrine. And some of, you know, like, especially like with uh, plural marriage and some of the more controversial doctrines of the, the Mormon church, sure. uh, we have the questions of personal conflicts, as we'll see with some of them as well. Some of them just kind of feel like they should be the natural successor, even though they've been disgraced. And we see in some cases, just a, a question of should it actually be familial? Should it be the actual physical descendants of right. Uh, Joseph Smith, who become the next uh, leader. So that's right. that's really kind of the situation that we're facing right now. Well, yeah, uh, the lineal succession is the first thing that I want to mention. That seems to be what a lot of people at the time of Joseph's death and even during Joseph's lifetime assume would happen. It would be a lineal succession. The RLDS Church, now known as the Community of Christ, which we'll talk about a little bit more, until the mid-90s, the mid-1990s, still held the lineal succession. They actually... When they get their first president, who is not a descendant of Joseph Smith, some people don't like that. They break off, 
and form something I think called the Remnant LDS or LDS Church <laughs> or something, which does have lineal succession. So yeah, so th- there, there's the question. And yeah, you mentioned the polygamy thing and lineal succession. For all of the talk of polygamy, it seems that Joseph only ever had children with his legal wife. You know, so there's not like there's a whole bunch of of babies out there or family members who could who could take on the role. But the obvious successor would have been Hiram Smith. That seems to be statements of that time indicate that Hiram Smith, you know, who was the presiding patriarch and the successor of Oliver Cowdery, who had been excommunicated, he would be the next president of the church. Now, the problem with that is Hiram is killed at the same time as Joseph. Right. So then we say, okay, what do we do then? Okay, there's Samuel Smith. That's the younger brother of Joseph, next guy in line. But about a month after Hiram and Joseph are killed, Samuel dies. Well, there goes that idea. (laughs) Right. And then that leaves you with the last surviving Smith brother, William, and he claimed that he had the right to do it. He also claimed that his brother Samuel was murdered, was poisoned. And who does he blame? Brigham Young. Brigham Young. <laughs> uh, Young denied the involvement. There's really no evidence of, of foul play here. William <laughs> William Smith is a very interesting character, and he's worth spending some time on. So he was one of the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the Mormon Church, okay? And he's the younger brother of Joseph Smith, and they did not get along well at all. Hmm. I mean, they would come to blows. It was a very rocky relationship. So so nepotism isn't always a good policy? Is that what you're saying? Imagine that, you know, yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's funny because even though there is such conflict there, Joseph kind of forces William into these leadership roles or forces William upon it. And the other leaders like Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer actually reject him. They, they didn't want him on there because he was such a mercurial character. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it, right? Yeah. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll eventually go with some of the, the breakaway groups and, and things like that. He, he bounces around a couple a couple of different ones, but yeah, he, he is not somebody that you would want running, you know, anything. <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, he felt entitled to it being the last Smith boy. And, you know, as you know, we've never had a problem with that issue in any other point of church history. No, we've, we've never had nepotism or anything in Lutheranism. <laughs> so, so the next thing we deal with then, okay, well, what about Joseph's children? Several church leaders, Several years before Joseph's death, it indicated that Joseph Smith III would be the successor. So now you're getting, okay, so now he's a king, I guess. There was allegedly a prophecy, you know, that one of Joseph Smith's sons would be the the successor or whatever. And eventually, a group of Mormons decides not to go west with Brigham Young and to stay with Joseph Smith III and Emma Smith. And that forms what today we know as the RLDS or nowadays community of christ so those those churches yeah there was there was significant tension between like emma for example joseph smith's first wife and joseph the third his son and brigham young and 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 the way he was handling some of the issues of succession and so because of this and because of the tensions between this uh, you do have this breakaway of the rlds 
and their insistence, which is why I hinted to, at this at the beginning, that Joseph never actually, was it that he never taught it or that at least never practiced plural marriage? The RLDS, for the most part, initially, now this changes again, and I don't know what was going on with them in the 1990s, but anyway, <laughs> the RLDS believes, and certainly the remnant that broke off from them believe that Joseph Smith was a monogamist. Right. And their argument is that most of the evidence that Joseph Smith was a polygamist come or or endorsed polygamy comes after his death and comes from Brigham Young and these documents that Brigham Young just happened to produce. And I think that's an interesting bit of history. I think it's worth having the discussion to see why they believe that he was a, mono, a monogamist. I'm not obviously not entirely convinced of it, but it is a very interesting debate. Sure. When it comes to the lineal succession thing, uh, we come up to another little bit of trivia uh, regarding Joseph Smith. There was a, a, a great forger named Mark Hoffman, and he actually forges in the 80s, he forges a copy of a supposed blessing given to Joseph Smith the third, naming him as his father's successor. Hoffman was forging all kinds of documents in general, but in particular, he was forging Mormon documents and selling them to either the LDS itself so that they could be tucked away somewhere or, <laughs> you know, to collectors or, or what have you. And Hoffman, there's at least a couple of good books written about him, but he, he's forging a lot of things that's, I mean, obviously they're fakes, but they're very good fakes. And some of his forgeries are still in anti-Mormon history books as if they're legitimate. Hmm. And so you want to be careful about that if you see his name pop up anywhere. Really, he should be a movie of the week because his story ends with him sending mail bombs to people and one of his own mail bombs goes off before he can get it mailed out. Oh, and, no. And things like that. I mean, just a very, very interesting, interesting <laughs> character, to say the well, least. <laughs> and, and here I was going to make a crack about how documents of you know unknown origin are no, nothing new for Mormonism, but that, that kind of blows whatever I was going to say away. <laughs> the, the most famous of his forgeries is the Salamander Letter, which basically tells an alternative version of Joseph Smith finding the golden plates, and it involves a, a magic talking salamander telling Joseph Smith where to dig. And it has Joseph Smith, like I think, doing some necromancy and things like that. It's <laughs> pretty amazing. And it caused a big stir when it when it was first unearthed, because again, he's such a good con artist that people were like, oh, oh what do we do here? You know, the Mormons in the 80s especially were, were dealing with the, what they believed were historically legitimate revelations in some cases that they had always denied. You know, they said, well, this isn't true. And then here comes this guy with these documents proving basically that what they had been teaching for years was false. And then anti-Mormon apologists jump on this and say, aha, we told you it was fake. And then it turns out, well, the fake is a fake. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're getting all kinds of confusion and everything when it comes to Mormon history. And even though we're about three decades removed from that, it's still hard to untie those knots a little bit. Sure. Now, we, we could sit here and say, okay, Mark Hoffman's documents are fake, but also the real Mormon documents are fake, you know, because they don't represent any, they don't represent biblical truth. Right. 
what a Mormon defender would hear is, oh, well, Mark Hoffman was a liar. So the opposite of what he says must be true, which is to say that, okay, so the LDS church is vindicated. That's not really the case. It's, it's just simply saying Mark Hoffman fooled everybody. Sure. You know, not really a big fan of his mail bombs, but his forgery work is just amazing. So, <laughs> Top and if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, Hoffman is actually eventually outed as a fake by Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who are n- probably the most famous of the anti-Mormon apologists. Well, no, there's there's a deep irony in there. But I yeah. think we're getting kind of way out in the woods now. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know. Anyway, <laughs> millennial succession. There you go. Okay. So that was Joseph Smith the third. Probably the next per- most likely person would be Oliver Cowdery, who's essentially been with Joseph since the beginning of his supposed revelation. Now, the problem with Cowdery was he was excommunicated in, in 1838. Uh, just just to clarify, wasn't he one of the original witnesses to the Golden yes. Plate? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, so he yeah, he is one of the, the witnesses to the, the three witnesses, but he is excommunicated, pals around with the Methodists for a while, and then ends up uh, essentially back in, I believe, before he dies. This is where we see this really complicated thing going on. Joseph, it seems, would just get mad at people and excommunicate them even high up guys, and then eventually bring them back in. And, you know, Cowdery leaves, and like I said, pals around with some Methodists, I think, again for a while, but doesn't really repudiate the vision that he claimed to have of these plates, and or the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the story of the plates, anyway. Now, he was, he was the, one, the one who came back and was preaching to the to the Mormons when Brigham is kind of elevated. Is that correct? Right, right. I mean, we, we haven't gotten to Brigham proper yet, and we're going to here and, and probably in the next segment, but I thought that was a, a very interesting point of history here of how Cowdery, after Joseph dies and kind of after he hears about it, comes back and tries to assume this leadership, and yet the he is ultimately rejected, and Brigham goes on to assume the mantle. Right, but so well, what happens with, with Cowdery is in 1848, he travels to meet with the followers of Brigham Young. Okay, so they're still in winter quarters, Nebraska at this point. And he, and he wants to be brought back into the church. The Quorum of the Twelve send the application on to whatever uh, the other council was. They all meet and basically said, as long as you no longer maintain any claim to leadership within the church, you can be brought back into the church by rebaptism. He agrees. He is rebaptized in like November 1848 or something, which had to have been cold in Nebraska then. <laughs> and there you go. So he's he's back in. Hmm. He wants to go out to Deseret and I'm not sure if he if he if he actually makes it out there. He might die before he gets there. Might have to do some some checking there too, but he is brought back in and here you start to see, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but here you start to see where Brig- Brigham Young is really asserting power. He doesn't want another succession crisis like what happened with Joseph. So any potential rivals, he is trying to squash before there are any serious challenges to his authority. All right, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly. 
The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast, available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. And we are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi talking what happens after Joseph Smith dies. You ever think you'd be, you know, talking about this subject at length on a podcast, Zelwyn, as a young boy out in the prairie? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I even live relatively close to the heart of Mormon country, and it never really dawned on me. So this is definitely what what has my life become, Willie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I know that you were all riveted with all these weird names and everything in the first segment, and then this spider's <laughs> web of, of men and, and everything. But it, it, you'll be happy to know it gets weirder from here. Well, because this is what I love about history in general. You know, you have the, the standard kind of vanilla guys, the ones that we tend to focus on, and their stories are interesting and their stories are important. But it's always more entertaining to hear about the guys who, like, literally claim to be a prophet, for example, like Joseph Smith, if only because you never know what they're going to do next. So right. this section of dealing with the groups that are emerging out of Mormonism is going to be an interesting one because you do have some rather colorful individuals. So I'll, I'll set you up for the first one then, Willie. So we've talked about Sidney Rigdon before, but now that Joseph has died, how does Sidney, Sidney Rigdon come back into the picture and you know, what, what group follows after him? So Sidney Rigdon is really the great preacher of the Latter-day Saint movement. He was the last remaining member of the first presidency if you will. Remember, there are three main bodies at this time, the High Council, the Presidency, and then the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I'm using apostles in their usage here. Nobody freak out. Yeah, yeah, right. So Rigdon is seen by this group, or is seen by a certain group of followers to be the rightful successor. So, okay, what do we do? Well, most people are going to end up following Brigham Young, but some don't. And so they they go after Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon kind of has a history of moving around these different groups a little bit early on, I think. I mean, he's part of the Campbellites, then, you know, comes and follows Joseph Smith. And then he's not going to go with with the Brighamites. Rigdon, a very interesting character. You know, he goes so far as on a couple of occasions to rebuke Joseph Smith to his face and things like that, things you would think you wouldn't do in a, in a group right. like this. <laughs> so so Rigdon's very much a, his own man and his own uh, personality. Sure. He converts a lot of people to Mormonism. And in 1845, he converts a man named William Bickerton. 
Okay. He's quickly ordained an elder and then an evangelist. And so he's going to be this really strong advocate for Rigdon as successor. That's going to morph into what today is known as the Church of Jesus Christ. Not confusing at all, but go on. <laughs> right. So, and you're going to get this a lot. They're going to call themselves like the Church of Christ or Church of Jesus Christ or something like that. But today, that's what they're known as the Church of Jesus Christ. And they're around 15,000 members, give or take. They've long rejected certain, we'll say, stereotypical Mormon doctrines. They don't believe in celestial marriage or plural marriage because that theology really gets fully orbed with the followers of Brigham Young. They have a concept of the Godhead that's formulated like this. They believe in God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are a great matchless power that rules all things visible and invisible and something something along those lines. So they have quasi-Trinitarian language, but it's not Nicene Christianity by any means. Sure. They do accept the New Testament, and they would say it contains a true description of the church founded by Jesus. But they also consider the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. Hmm. You know, their principles, you, you have to believe, repent, be baptized in water. And they also have what they call a baptism of fire, which is a laying on of hands to receive the Holy Ghost. Sounds kind of quasi-Pentecostal. Right, exactly, exactly. They do foot washing, that sort of thing. So it's this weird amalgamation. It almost feels like like one of these second grade awakening groups. Well, I mean, the Mormons would be one of those too, but it doesn't go as far as the as the LDS is going to go, but still has a ton of problems. Now, sure. the Church of Jesus Christ, or what we'll call the Bickertonites, just to keep it simple, is also notable for this one little bit of, of trivia in that it is the church home of Alice Cooper. That's the church he was raised in. <laughs> All right. Although All I don't right. think he was ever baptized in it. His father, or excuse me, Alice Cooper's, grandfather was president of the Bickertonite Church in the 60s, for a couple years in the 60s. Now, I was under the impression that Cooper had come back into more evangelical Christianity. Is that is that not the case? He did, but, but, but he was brought up. His father, by the way, was an evangelist for the Bickertonites, and his hmm. father's name is Ether Moroni. Well, that's an extremely Mormon name. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and I remember hearing Alice Cooper tell stories about his dad or somebody giving him R.C. Sproul books huh? to give you kind of an idea of the flavor of this church, right? Right. And so, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Alice Cooper now is a member of a Bible-believing church. And so oh. I actually, that makes me feel good that I can say that Alice Cooper is not in this group, right? That, that is good, yes. <laughs> so he yeah, Al- Alice him, Cooper so. comes around to, to Christianity. You know, and it's funny— and part of the reason we're unpacking all of these groups are, I mean, are you likely to bump into a lot of them? No. But if you saw a church like this, you just from the outside, you wouldn't think it was had anything to do with Mormonism. Hmm. Sure. Until you got in and maybe saw a Book of Mormon around or something. So although we're going to spend a lot of time on the history of Brigham Young, because you're talking, you know, 15,000 members in the Bickertonite Church versus, what, 20 million in right. the LDS? right, right. And uh, that's that's going to get even <laughs> that name's going to get a little complicated too. So anyway, that's the Bicker tonight's still around, and uh, you know Alice Cooper brought up there, and the Lord delivered him. So how about that? Well, 
praise praise be to God for that. So, right. well, let's let's delve into another one of these groups, and perhaps one of the uh, even more colorful groups, if you can believe it, the Strangites. Yes, the Strangites, and yeah, and that's what we're going to call them. Although his church is going to be known as the Church, or excuse me, as Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Of course, it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is going to get confusing because. The mainstream Mormon church that we know, the followers of Brigham Young, they are known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The 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 makes all the difference? Well, there's a the, there's a dash between Latter-day, and day is not capitalized in the Brighamites. But it's two (laughs) words in the Strangites and both capitalized. So there you go. Yeah. So that that was free. String ends up in Beaver Island, Michigan, and declares himself a king. The king of Beaver Island, if you will. And so, yeah, he he stresses that the leader of the church on earth will be a king. Now, I suppose we could sort of get behind that if you believed that Jesus Christ is king, and he is, and always will be. But this isn't Jesus. This is James Strang on Beaver Island (laughs) declaring himself a king. (laughs) There are still a few Strangites hanging around couple hundred, maybe. Well, now, now don't bury the lead here, though, Willie. What, <laughs> what makes this story the most interesting? Uh, you want to go with uh, his assassination? Or... Yeah, that, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the, the, crowning, the crowning capstone of this one. Right, yeah. He, is, he eventually gets enough enemies that he is assassinated on a boat while Navy officers are watching. So I'll read some of the account here. He is on a boat or at least he's somewhere. No, I'm sorry. He's on the dock. I believe he's on the dock in the chief city of St. James, which is the main major city in Beaver Island. Naval officers are watching this. Two men come up and assault him. Strange is shot three times. One bullet grazes his head. Another hits him in the cheek. Another hits him in the spine and cripples him. And then the assassin comes and begins to pistol whip him before they jump onto a boat to claim sanctuary. And, so the the naval officers essentially do nothing. The king of Beaver Island is then taken to Vori, where he lives for three more weeks before dying. Hmm. Basically, the assassins are are sent to like Mackinac Island. They're given a trial. They're fined one dollar and twenty five cents and and released. So nobody was really sad to see James Strang go. Is what you're no, he's a, he's a very irascible character. The locals actually honor, I believe, the the assassins. <laughs> that's 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 the legacy that you leave behind there. Yeah, right. Your assassins get more press time than you do. Right. So, and 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 he is accused by the Michigan government of everything from treason to trespassing, counterfeiting, hmm. all kinds of things. This these early Mormons kind of brush up against the criminal underworld a little bit. I mean, you see this all the way back with the Kirtland Safety Society, you know, which essentially goes goes bankrupt. And when Joseph Smith is accused of all manner of, of impropriety, it's going to get, you know, even bloodier as they go out west. Sometimes their fault, sometimes not their fault, to be fair. So Strang, yeah. So murdered, crazy person. No offense to the Strangites out there. All 300 of them. Right. <laughs> and we've got a few micro synods too. That's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Mormon, the Mormons are the only ones who do this. So it is what it is. 
But right now, now Strang is going to teach contrary to the Trinity. He believes in the plurality of the gods. He does believe in a progression to godhood. So he's similar to the Brighamites in this way. And so you'll start to see some of these groups sort of move toward a more traditional understanding, but most of them just go off the rails pretty quickly. Sure. Well, as much as as much as I would love to stay with the Strangites, <laughs> what about the the next group that we have here? Um, the the he- the Hedricks. Yeah, the Hedrickites. That is what is known as the Church of Christ Temple Lot or Church of Christ with the Elijah message. And both of those groups having nine or 10,000 members or so. It's kind of hard to get statistics on these, frankly. Sure. At, at least they have a unique name. So I'll give them that much. Right. So, okay, Hedrick, the Hedrickites, what are they, what are they notable for? Well, basically Hedrick in the 1860s begins to produce revelations saying that the pride of Joseph Smith led him to produce false revelations. As a result, he claims that Smith then introduced doctrines that were contrary to the Word of God, as found in the Bible, and the Book of Mormon. So he considers Smith to be a fallen prophet. Hmm. So, just so we're tracking, Smith was a prophet until he wasn't. <laughs> and he wrote the Book of Mormon and then and then contradicted it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> so... He says, notably, that one of the errors introduced by Smith was the creation of a president of the church in the first presidency. So Hmm. he contends that the Church of Christ was to be headed by only a presiding elder. And then eventually, I think that church does away with that office, too, and and makes an apostle or something like that. Hmm. He rejects plural marriage, celestial marriage, exaltation, the plurality of the gods, tithing 10% he rejects, and I don't believe he believes in a high priest. What's it got left? (laughs) (laughs) Right, you know, it's it's a good question. So if you recall in the last episode of Joseph Smith, we talked about the Missouri extermination order that essentially does away with Mormonism in the state for a while. Well, the Hendrickites actually returned to Missouri where they now own a property that they believe is going to be the future location of a temple wherein New Jerusalem will be founded. In Missouri. In Missouri, yeah. Okay. So that's why you get the Church of Christ temple lot. Hmm. So yeah, they believe that eventually this is going to be the site of, of New Jerusalem. And that's the, that is that is the plot of land that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon dedicated as the location of New Jerusalem. So he, he is consistent there. It's not like he just showed up and, and made that up. There was some precedence for that. Sure. We, we associate... Mormonism with Utah so much in popular culture, we forget how important Missouri is to them. Well, even even before the extermination order and how much Smith had put his hopes in Missouri, even go, like you say, even going so far as to designate this land as the, the site of the New Jerusalem. So yeah, Missouri is quite important in that respect. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Hedrick then? Nope, nope. We've got okay. a couple more to go here, so I think we can get them through. We'll get them in. I'll be pithy. <laughs> Well, I like the stories. They're, they're, <laughs> they keep things entertaining. So, well, what about the Cutlerites? Um, Alpheus Cutler. Alpheus Cutler, his group is going to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ Cutlerite. Okay. So, right. Church of Jesus Christ. There's like a handful of them left, you know, le- less than a hundred. 
He initially goes on with the Brighamites, but eventually breaks away from them and founds his own his own group. Cutler claims that Smith's church had been rejected by God for its transgressions and that only he had the power to reorganize it. Hmm. One of the reasons he believes that Smith's church was rejected was his failure to complete the Nauvoo Temple hmm. okay. within the time frame mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants. So because of that, Smith's church was not legitimate. So there you go. So now, uh, <laughs> now they are in Missouri. I believe they're in Independence, Missouri. They have, it looks like a house, but that's where they meet and do their, do their thing. I, I do believe that they still do temple ordinances, and it's in like the upstairs of their church building. So allegedly, they're the only non-LDS church who do the endowment ceremony, the temple ceremony that was practiced or that originated during the, the Nauvoo temple period. Which would make sense if they have fixation on Nauvoo. Yeah, exactly. It's just odd. You don't really have this temple work going on in a lot of these breakaway groups and especially not one this small and one really holding to, to this really old way of doing it. Sure. Sure. They do practice baptisms for the dead in the Cutlerite Church, but they don't believe in eternal marriage. Hmm. Uh, one little interesting thing about them is that they, of course, hold to the Book of Mormon in like the 1846 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, but they use the what they call the inspired version of the Bible, uh, which yeah, is not the King James, don't get excited, <laughs> but it's what we would call the Joseph Smith translation. Huh. So they use Joseph Smith's translation, and then they produce like an atlas of Mormon lands or something like that. But yeah, they're they're still hanging on. Pretty pretty productive for being such a relatively small group. So right, right, all right. Well, that brings us then kind of back to the other main splinter group, and probably the largest of the splinter groups, right? Joseph Smith the third and the right. RLDS and the RLDS. So yeah, these are this is. Emma Smith, Joseph Smith's wife, and her son, Joseph Smith III, this is their group. They don't follow Brigham, and this is the largest of the non-LDS Mormon groups. They are known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then recently they've changed their name to the Community of Christ. In the 2000s, they did that. They tend to be more open. They've never practiced plural marriage. They have women in roles that they typically wouldn't be allowed in in, in Mormonism, things like that. Uh, not quite orthodox, although they use a quasi-Trinitarian statement. But again, you got to be careful with that. You know, don't right. deviate from the creeds here. <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of true of, of Mormonism and all these breakaway Mormon groups in general. Even if they use quasi-Trinitarian language, we are still dealing with non-Nicene formulations, which means that we cannot consider them a part of, of right. Orthodox Christianity. Right, sure. So they point to Jesus as the living word of God. They affirm the Bible. And I think they do put a particular emphasis on the Joseph Smith translation. They affirm the Book of Mormon and Doctrines and Covenants as scripture. But then there's a few odd things, like they use the Revised Common Lectionary in their church. Okay, <laughs> that's random. <laughs> <laughs> Another strike against the three year, I guess. But, yeah, you, you just get these weird, these weird like things like that that you just wouldn't expect. Like they're using a lectionary, okay. 
And they, I think the only time that they change it is when it disagrees with the Joseph Smith translation in some way. Hmm. So yeah, uh, they are, they are notable um, and they're, you know, sizable, sizable enough. You know, you're probably looking at what 250,000 members they would have maybe 300,000, which means they're larger than the Wells or the ELS. Uh, if you think of it that way, to kind of put hmm. it in perspective there. Because sure. how big is the Wisconsin Senate? I'd have to look it up. Well, they're, they're, no, they're probably bigger than 250,000. But Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, the, the the ELS, certainly, I don't think it has 250,000 members. Well, and, and maybe and maybe to kind of close out this section. Yeah, oh, I'm way. sorry. Uh, let me, just to be fair to the Wisconsin Senate, they have 350, almost 360,000 baptized members. So apologies. So... A bit bigger, but you know, just trying to trying to you know explain this for scale. Yeah, sure. No, and, and that is helpful to to kind of put it in terms of scale. But I think maybe just to, as a way of closing out this section to kind of remind our listeners why we're going through all of these different groups, it really does emphasize the the great turmoil that Mormonism has been going through after the do- death of Joseph Smith, because you have all of these little breakaway groups coming about as a result of this crisis of you know who is going to follow in his footsteps. And it's not really until we get to Brigham, and who we're going to cover in the next segment, that we have the majority of the Mormons following, and so the beginning of what we would consider the LDS, the the major Mormon church. Right. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Brigham Young here on Word Fitly. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken. Welcome back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, talking the great Mormon succession crisis. Well, we went through a lot of colorful characters in this episode, but one figure really looms over them all. And we've just barely touched on him uh, here in this episode for good reason, uh, because he really deserves a lot of time dedicated to him. And that is Brigham Young. Now, Brigham Young is the man that most people consider the successor to Joseph Smith. He's kind of a large figure even in popular culture. He was a well-known figure even in his day. And he really is the great architect of Mormonism in America, whether we like it or not. And I mean, not that we ever really have a dog in the fight zone, but... <laughs> Fair enough. You know, he is... When we think of Mormonism today, and I mean Mormonism in the mainstream of things... It's really a product of Brigham Young, even more so than Joseph Smith. I think we can make that case. 
the public polygamy is going to happen when they move out west, for example. A lot of the the egregious doctrines of Mormonism really come from Brigham Young and his successors, although you could argue they have their, their seed and their root in Joseph Smith. This is true, but they don't quite get fleshed out until the later period. Just so much going on there and a fascinating character to deal with. So that being said, let's take a look at the life, a brief look at the life of Brigham Young, and we'll certainly get more into the westward expansion and conflicts with the U.S. government and things like that in future episodes. So Zelwyn, when you think Brigham Young, as, as our native westerner, what comes to <laughs> mind for you? Well, I mean, I suppose in the modern day, you can't get away from his name, even even in things like BYU and in you know, like the university. So, I mean, he continues to be a popular figure, even in just having his name on things. And so the fact that things are named after him should show something of his influence. But I personally, I mean, just reading and learning more about him have come to understand a great deal about how, you know, this, this man of this very decisive character could accomplish many of the things that he did, because as we'll go on to talk about in, the episodes up ahead, especially with the Great Migration, to orchestrate and to manage the scattered LDS people after the death of Joseph Smith was no small feat in itself. So even if we certainly can blame him for many of the problems that we would say Mormonism has, you cannot deny the fact that he was a tremendous organizer and a very powerful and forceful personality. Right. Yeah, and that's going to be what we're going to wrestle with a little bit. You know, what is his legacy? Is he a great pioneer to one degree or another, or is he simply just a thug who wielded his power? What I think we're going to uncover, though, and what I don't think is up for debate, is that Brigham Young is a much better administrator than Joseph Smith ever was. Without question. And yeah. we and we brought that up a little bit in the Joseph Smith episodes, how... Every commercial venture that uh, Joseph Smith attempts fails, and he he really, even though he's considered a prophet, you know, God's mouthpiece on earth, has a very hard time corralling and controlling his people. I know that sounds kind of odd to say an admirable Kate and a cult leader is that he's able to maintain control, but nevertheless, <laughs> it is what it is. So yeah, all right. So Brigham Young. Now, I would like to highlight once again that... Mormonism, very much a Yankee movement, and Brigham Young is going to come out of Vermont, a traveling blacksmith and carpenter, basically a tradesman. He is, like other early Mormons or certain other early Mormons, sort of tangentially Methodist, you know? So in the 1820s, he is in the Methodist church, but you don't get the feeling that he was really that strongly committed. The feeling that I got from it, him being, as you say, tangentially Methodist, was that because, like so many in that part of the world, he was deeply concerned with issues of living, issues of you know what it means to be a Christian, he kind of tended to bounce around quite a bit and just kind of ends up in Methodism as being kind of the dominant force at the time. But then when Joseph comes along and is proclaiming his message, although I don't think that he becomes Mormon through Joseph, if I remember right. Correct me on that. But when he finally does become Mormon, he's kind of settled into what he believes to be 
something satisfying to his his religious wandering. Yeah, I mean, he's actually converted th- through reading the Book of Mormon. Okay. But, I mean, that's kind of what Mormons want you to do, right? right. Read this <laughs> and see if you feel that it's true. So he officially joins the church in something like 1832. So that's pretty early. Remember, Book of Mormon published 1830. And then he's sent as a missionary like Canada or someplace. So <laughs> I thought it was England. No, 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 no. It's Taylor, I believe, ends up in. Well, he is English, but no, I, uh, no. uh, Brigham initially, I believe, sent to Upper Canada. Although I guess we could say that's that's Britain, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So his wife dies around the time that he officially joins the church, and so Young ends up in Kirtland, Ohio, uh, to help establish the community there. A few years after that, he's made one of the twelve apostles. And that's when he really begins to assume a leadership role. And I believe it's at that point that Mormonism begins the expansion into the United Kingdom. Okay. But it's at the same time, they're planning their exodus over toward Missouri within a few short years of each other. Well, even, even with these foreign missions that they had, I thought it was interesting that they always encouraged the converts in these foreign countries to emigrate and move out to be with the other saints. So it was kind of like a, a foreign recruiting service rather than just trying to st- establish temples or churches in other places. Again, though, this is going to be very important as we study Mormonism, that you're looking at these very early, early days of the church. Brigham Young is starting to become influential, and he's very much involved in the evangelism efforts, which I think is very important. From the beginning of the Mormon church, they have been about converting people. And we cannot stress how effective they were. One wonders, of course, what would cause someone to believe something like this, but they develop their conversion techniques early on, and it's ultimately going to be Brigham who is able to take these converts and then convince them to go all the way out west in order to establish this this Mormon community. Now, Let's talk about this a little bit, since we're already in Kirtland at this point um, in the in the story. If you remember, what were they trying to do in Kirtland, Ohio? Well, setting up Zion, is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, they're trying to build a, a perfect society. We mentioned Sidney Rigdon earlier. Of course, he's around at this time. He is enamored with this idea that they can live in what is essentially a communal arrangement. I don't want to say socialist, because that's not quite... The, it's, it's, it's everything shared in common. And that doesn't work because it's never actually worked. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you get you get it in the book of Acts, but then it's only mentioned like two, three times earlier in the book, and then it's kind of not mentioned again. Yeah, and even even then, it's kind of like, wasn't it still your own while you still had it? And it's like, yeah, it's not really right. It's really right. It's it's rather <laughs> different. So the, it doesn't work in Kirtland, Rigdon is enamored with this, and when he ends up with a breakaway group, he tries to make it work, too, in other places, and it just never happens. So I think Young is bright enough to see these failures. So when they go out west, eventually, into what is now Utah, what we'll call Deseret for the purposes of our discussion, everything is ran well, but it's not entirely shared in common, but he very much stresses Mormon products for Mormon people. And there are some export some exports that go out to the to the east too, but he he rather brilliantly is able to 
convince people of the necessity to go out. And he does this through a very strong sense of community, which the Mormons still have today. And I think that's really what binds them together so strongly. And I think it's what attracts a lot of people. Sure. Now, it's it's in a very mild form today compared to what it was. I mean, we're, we're not talking about taking hand carts from Omaha all the way to Salt Lake City or anything <laughs> like that. But the communities, the families are very tight-knit. And I think that that struggle they went through at this time heading out west really is still very much part of their cultural understanding. And so it binds them together. Like the Greek Orthodox churches, for example, you know, they escape the Turks, they come to America, and they remain really tight-knit because of that. I think you have a little bit of that going on with the Mormons. Now, Brigham, now we can go into all this this minutia here, but we're not going to. He is a big guy. He is very forceful in his personality, and he runs things with an iron fist. Now, we have sermons of his, we have lectures of his. It's interesting to see how he grows really comfortable in his skin. It seems like from the very beginning, he's not afraid to go out and preach to people to contend for Mormon doctrine and things like that. And I think that that goes a long way in selling the Mormon message. Brigham had skin in the game. And I think people took him seriously because of that. There's a lot of odd things going on in early Mormonism. We don't typically associate speaking in tongues with Mormonism. And yet that was going on during these early days. And Brigham Young himself not only used to speak in tongues a lot, but also used to even sing in tongues. So you had these sort of false manifestations of the Spirit going on, all kinds of things working that were really impressing people. And you think, well, well, why would that impress someone? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be fooled by that. Well, we have people that are impressed by tongue speaking today, even though it's demonstrably false, right? Sure. And I, sure. And I mean this in the Pentecostal way. This isn't someone all, all of a sudden knowing a, a language miraculously like you have in the Bible. You have people, right. frankly, speaking just utter gibberish, and people still believe it. That is a difficult thing for us to really fathom, because why would someone hearing a message like this believe it and then follow someone like Brigham Young? Why did the majority of the people go with Brigham Young? And that's one of the great questions of Mormon history, and I think it really has to do with his stature in the church, of course, but also with just his sheer force of personality. Well, and even during the times when there was kind of these debates going on, the succession crisis, uh, Brigham really ends up presenting himself as that forceful personality, the kind of man that is not afraid to take up the reins that had been left behind and to really demonstrate himself as being the one who would lead the, the scattered Mormon people. And he becomes very much the public face of Mormonism. I mean, really more so than Joseph Smith. A couple of reasons. One, he's going to outlive him. He's going to oversee a a rather large growth, but he's also coming up in the age of the camera. (laughs) So there are actual photographs and stuff. Uh, There's all kinds of political cartoons dealing with him. He he wields actual political power. He is governor of the Utah Territory. That's that's the weird thing for Americans today to grasp too, right? That basically (laughs) there's a a a government sanctioned theocracy happening. 
and all these tensions. Now we will unpack this in great detail in a later episode, but you're, I mean, it's just, it's a strange, strange time in American history. And the Mormons just going out into the West in what was basically just open territory and basically told to go there because then they would be beyond the reach of the U.S. government and stuff like that. Right. And, and then the railroads happen. And, and then the, <laughs> and the government happens, you know, the government comes out and, but Young, again, it's at this time where he doesn't like it. He doesn't want government encroachment, which is at least a, there's, there's one quality you can admire. <laughs> but he's establishing lots of public welfare projects. He builds ridges, broads, organizes a militia, runs out some Indians, I believe. But don't quote me on the tribe. The Indian relations thing is also very interesting. He organizes a mail service in the Utah Territory. One of the tidbits I found the most interesting is the Mormons are responsible for one of the earliest settlements of what is now Las Vegas. Yeah. And probably <laughs> right. ironies in American history. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. He undertakes to build uh, temples again, which is happening. And then you see the great expansion of Mormon teaching. So the Doctrine and Covenants has at least one thing from uh, uh, Brigham Young that's canonized as what they consider scripture. Brigham Young is very vocal in his support for polygamy. He has, I forget the exact number of wives, but it's something like 56 children. Right. A huge number. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes the wives counting can get a little tricky. You know, who really counts if someone was divorced? I think it's something like 54 or 55, something like that. It's a lot of wives. And manages to, to do all this stuff. So polygamy... The Adam-God doctrine, which is the idea, the heretical idea that Adam is our God. Right. And then, of course, probably most second most famous after polygamy today is his basic banning of black people from the priesthood of the church. Something that wouldn't change until the 60s. I believe it's the 70s before it's officially changed. The 70s. Okay. But I think... I think all of that is something that we should talk about in more detail as we go forward. Oh, but absolutely. Maybe, We're just laying down the Brigham Foundation here. Yeah. Right. But maybe as a way of kind of starting to build on that foundation, why don't you kind of explain the the actual succession crisis as it involves Brigham and how he basically ends up taking control as he did? Because like we've kind of alluded to it and kind of hinted at it, but how does how does the story actually go down in the like the last little bit of this of this episode? Well, that's a very good question. Why the majority side with Brigham instead of other people? Because there are all kinds of these other guys that we talked about who are claiming to be the legitimate authority. Well, Brigham Young was already president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, so he's already like about as high ranking as you can get and not be Joseph Smith. Now, what happens is there are people who then come forward and claimed to have, or at least one notable case, where he claimed to have a vision of Brigham Young as Joseph Smith, things like that. So you have a clear case of he has more political clout. People maybe fear him. His biggest contention is against Emma Smith, really. Then that's the, the largest group, you know, the breakaway group. So you have these people who are claiming, basically, that God is testifying to them that Brigham Young should be the leader of the church or is the rightful successor to Joseph Smith. 
So it's a case of having actual political power within the structure and then some spurious revelations, which is kind of how false religions are started every time. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's Fair what enough. that's what we end up with there. I, I don't know that I mean I, well I do know that there there are no great numbers of people following after a lot of these breakaway groups that we talked about. Brigham is very famous in his day. Really the only one who can match him for being famous at that time at the death of Joseph Smith is probably Sidney Rigdon. Okay. And he's probably the only one who who could ma- could have made a legitimate claim. But he never had this relationship with Joseph Smith the way Brigham did. It's a little hot and cold with Sidney Rigdon at times. There, there is some contention, not, not so much with Brigham. Brigham is very much a, a Joseph Smith loyalist. And so it just, it just made sense. And so once Brigham becomes the leader, he starts to lock this down. He doesn't want a succession crisis to happen like it did when Joseph Smith died. So anyone who was a threat to his authority in the church, like Oliver Cowdery, for example, if he was going to be brought back into the church, he had to swear that he had no right to authority in the church. He had to essentially swear to Brigham Young's authority. And so Brigham never suffers a succession crisis. The Mormons, or at least the LDS, don't really suffer it again, and they haven't until this day because, again, he's an effective administrator and a little bit of a thug. So there's some fear there, but there's also some excellent organization. So now they have a pretty cut-and-dry way of choosing who the next leader would be. And it's usually the the senior member of the first presidency today. Sure. Well, and like you say, even if if he is a little heavy-handed, the fact that he is able to organize the the Mormon church in that way does say something about uh, how he's able to navigate all of these issues. Right, and I'm not even sure if I'm if if I mean thug as an insult at this point, you know. <laughs> but he just he had to he had to lock it down and that's that's what it takes. If you're going to run an, an organization like that, if you're going to found a new nation, you're going to have to have some some heavy-handedness there. <laughs> Bust bust a few eggs to, to make an omelet kind of a thing. So Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so there's the introduction to Brigham Young. Any anything else, Zelwyn, before we wrap it up here? Well, and just as a as kind of a preview for our listeners, now that we've gotten up to the time of the death of Joseph Smith again with the story of Brigham, we're gonna be looking at his more I mean the the big events that shape his life, including the the westward migration and the the great struggle that they had to go through to accomplish that. Right, we're we're going to talk uh, too in those episodes about the doctrines that he's very famous for espousing, like the Adam God doctrine, like polygamy, those sorts of things. Because we know that you've been waiting for it. We do hear and we do listen to our listeners, so we're we're getting there. Yeah, well, this isn't just history for history's sake. We are interested also in you know, finding the truth of the matter, or in this case, you know, speaking truth against error. Right. And, and you know, when, when sometimes you look in awe at these guys who go out west and fight these hard struggles, and you go, man, how did they weather this? That is in no way an endorsement of their theology or anything like that. It's just saying <laughs> it's rough country out there. Yeah, I mean, you you could you could appreciate the rough and tumble western guys who, you know, carved out the west, even if they were kind of 
uh, I'm not talking about Mormons, but I mean, just in general, if they were kind of morally deficient, but yet they still accomplished a great thing. So there is something to admire in it, even if we still have to ultimately say this, this was wrong. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, all right. Thanks, Zellin. Always a pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zellin Heidi. God love you, and God bless. Whatever Brigham's words, whatever his appearance and manner, some of those present were startled by an occurrence they regarded as miraculous. Benjamin Johnson, a young man of 26, said that he was seated between the stand and the wagon, and that, as he turned from the wagon to face the stand, he saw Brigham stand up. But as soon as he spoke, I jumped upon my feet, for in every possible degree it was Joseph's voice and his person in look, attitude, dress, and appearance. It was Joseph himself personified, and I knew in a moment the spirit and mantle of Joseph was upon him.